0: Welcome back to Second Self. This week's guest is author and counterweight founder Helen Pluckrose. Helen is the co-author of best-selling book Cynical Theories, but she's probably even more widely known for her role in the Grievance Studies Affair, also known as the Sokal Squared Hoax, which she took part in with James Lindsay and philosopher Peter Boghossian in 2017 and 2018. Together, the three wrote essentially 20 fake, deliberately bad academic papers and sent them out to journals. Um, They were successful in getting seven of those papers accepted and four published. The project was essentially designed to highlight what the authors saw as slipping standards within academia more widely but also the growth and increasing prevalence of what they saw as grievance studies. Helen is also the founder of Counterweight, an organisation that advocates for essentially liberalism, liberal concepts of social justice, like universalism, individualism, and viewpoint diversity, as well as the free exchange of ideas. Generally, when you hear Helen in one of her many many podcast interviews that she has done she is so adept and so skilled at talking about critical social justice and its academic genus that we often don't get to learn a huge amount about her as a person given that Helen is my friend and a person whose company I really enjoy I thought it might be nice to show her human side a little more, especially considering that I think of all the people I know she's certainly the most vilified on social media, Um, the most vilified woman, the most vilified person I think, Uh, or rather the most trolled. So in this conversation we talk about liberalism, critical social justice and feminism and I hope that you find it useful Oh, hey, Helen. How are you doing? Hello. Lovely to see you. You're looking gorgeous. <laughs> well, thanks. I love your red lipstick. As per usual, you, you <laughs> always uh, prepare. Um, It actually occurred to me because we had tech issues before this that uh, as long as I've known you, every time we interact in person, there's always some kind of like problem that we need to mutually solve in order to pursue whatever recreational activity is happening.
1: I I think I do need to add to that, that the problem we have is always um, on my side and um, quite often (laughs) involves you having to come and find me um, in one way or another.
0: (laughs) To be fair, I I think the first time we met was uh, shortly after I moved to London and we were at Piccadilly Circus and I got us lost because I thought, you know, I can read a map kind of. (laughs) And, but I I couldn't, so we both got lost. Um, so I I mean I'm really I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about change and stuff related to that because I think you are widely known, um, justifiably as quite a thorough and intellectual, and academic person. And not that this isn't related to that, it, it is. But um, I suppose I know you as a, a very sort of interesting caring person and uh we don't get to see that side of you that much except when you go on um occasional uh twitter diatribes which invariably end in some photo of mashed food that (laughs) undoes all the good (laughs) oh my god
1: yeah well, well you you know where all the bodies are buried so i'm i'm putting myself in your hands with trepidation
0: Um, Okay. Well, I mean, obviously the theme has changed. So I I figured it would be, there's obviously loads of stuff to talk about counterweight and and your kind of um, interesting career up to this point. But I thought it would be interesting to ask you, uh, because I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of the sort of ideologies and, and the versions of the world that we inherit before we go out into the world and, you know, try and forge our own. So what were the what were the ideas, as it were, about the world that you left your parents' home and, and, and took into the world? Um, and how many of those do you think you still hold now? OK, so, so my
1: parents, um, uh, very strange. My, my, my father is um, very, very conservative, uh, while my mother was a liberal um, feminist So they had the same argument um, constantly for about, for nearly 50 years, um, only ending with his death. So I I think I inherited a lot of the feminism that I had. My brand of feminism, anyway, was very much my mother's. So she arrived in London at the age of 18 in 1960. And she took on Lloyd's Bank, essentially, because they didn't allow women on the bank floor. They didn't allow them to take accountancy exams. When she requested a meeting Um, why um, the they, uh, manager thought it was amusing and sufficient to say, well, there's no accounting for women. And um, so that didn't go down very well with her. And then as well, she found herself in the um, in 1970s, in in london with a good job because she's um she's she's very um hard working and, and bright and the money to actually afford a um a, a flat to to but start to buy a place but she couldn't do that without a male guarantor and her father had died she didn't have anybody and she was trying to to get a mortgage and um she was told well you could get pregnant and she said, do, do you think I have any say over that or not? Um, is that something? <laughs> and so she. this is why, this is what um, my mother's feminism was rooted in. And she she kind of largely retired from feminist activism in the 80s after a weekend retreat with some radical feminists, which um, didn't go down well. But um, she, she largely retired when the legal battles were won, although she will still have a um, lengthy diatribe about things like um, the Pussycat Dolls and how that is offensive to um, all women and their empowerment everywhere. So yeah, I'm I'm more like her, but my my parents were both atheists. I became a Christian um, because of school, so I had myself baptised and confirmed um, as a Christian, and I, I became very, very devout. Now later, it is something to do with um, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy that I've always had. It, it can result in hyper religiosity, but it, it completely baffled my parents. Um, and they, but they, you know, liberal mother. Uh, conservative father thought it's uh, it's it, uh, let her do her own thing and well that's probably quite a nice thing so i i left um my my family home um as an atheist in the end i i i lost my faith i couldn't maintain it i was very left wing i was um extremely um feminist at that time, and this was 1990, so I entered the work world when there there really was still some quite sexist attitudes against women. I I didn't get to experience them too much because I only worked in one place where there was a male boss, and um, he he was very he was elderly and he did believe that I should be the one to to make the tea and try not to talk too much. So we had a bit of a problem there, and I I generally sort of addressed that when he would he he told me once that i was a clever girl and i said thank you you're a clever boy and that <laughs> that didn't go down well but generally i i've worked in female dominated professions so i haven't had too much of a problem and i've seen this kind of casual sexism that i experienced as a teenager and a young woman just just die almost entirely, apart from very elderly people. It just isn't the norm now. So I, I get quite annoyed with with feminists who insist that we are still in this state where women. I, I've realised I'm going into into, that, into politics again, aren't I? But um, <clears throat> yeah, where um, we're still in this state where um, women are, are routinely oppressed and dev- devalued. That was a very, very long answer, but those were the ideas that I left with.
0: It was a pretty good and, and thorough answer, but I mean, I think you've you've even sort of got into what I wanted to talk about next, which was, um, you know, makes a lot of sense given the battles that your mother had to fight and the environment you would have grown up in being raised by her and her values that you would have left home kind of primed for a war, essentially. <laughs> and as you say, um, you found evidence that there was still a lot of that kind of um, casual sexism, as you say, um, which of course still exists, but it it doesn't, I agree with you that it, it doesn't exist with the same shameless openness as it were. I think um, mm. we have a lot more um, freedom to uh, exist in a, a sort of an, in a non, non-directly gendered um, way, which is obviously a hugely beneficial for for women. Um, and I know that I have kind of irked friends and and people around me, women around me, when when I have said recently enough that I, I don't identify as a feminist anymore. And part of the reason is what you describe, which is that at least in this part of the world, I don't think it is any longer a fight for basic rights and entitlements. I think it is more sprucing at the margins and the people who I see most virulently arguing for it are people in quite advantaged categories who are interested in, you know, um, advancement of power not like necessary power for basic uh functioning in the world but advantageous power in places like you know universities um so yeah i agree with you there <laughs> i may get in a lot of trouble for saying that but whatever <laughs> yeah
1: uh, you know, I, I think there's there's certainly still um, space to, to think about gender. And if if I get the chance to go back to university, I'd, I'd love to do my PhD in gender studies and teach it in a way I think is properly. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, but uh, I, I yeah I don't think there's there's a justification for reading this society through a misogynistic framework. I, I think reality is more complex.
0: Agreed. Um, And I think that's something that obviously you've, as long as I've known you anyway, and I'm sure before, you are incredibly devoted to nuanced arguments and ideas. And obviously in the like online environment, everything is flattened to one dimension and it's almost impossible to exist in a way that's nuanced or to be interpreted in a way that's nuanced. And I see you perpetually kind of wrestling against people who refuse to allow your arguments or your points to have any and you know you resist that pretty virulently but um, I mean have you always been like that is that a characteristic that you've had since you were younger or have you built it almost you know defensively and and as you observe issues in the world you want to think about
1: (laughs) um no i i couldn't say that for the majority of my life i have been somebody who addressed issues with um care precision and nuance i've i've certainly always been somebody who um cared very much that things make sense i i remember as a child often being very angry with adults for, for logical inconsistencies um of uh, you know, saying things like, it's very important to tell the truth. Uh, now say you're sorry that I'm not. Say it anyway. And, and th- th- this, I remember being very angry about this, this kind of inconsistency, which is certainly something that's carried on. But in my my teens and in my 20s, I I mostly used my verbal abilities to be... Uh, contrarian and to argue with people for the sake of it, and I, um, I had some quite unbalanced um, positions. So I, I did, I, I was very, very left wing, but I, I also believed that um, conservatives were were simply heartless. That that half of the population just didn't um, have any um, compassion, and so I was definitely lacking in. In any kind of um, maturity and and balance there, I think I, I've picked up as I've as I've started to engage um, more and more with with people as I've matured and as I've um, looked at arguments and, and read, it, it was Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind that enabled me to understand conservative moral intuitions for example uh, that that was quite a breakthrough moment for me and i i went back and i i tested um a lot of um the book on my father directly and, and he scored 100% so uh, <laughs> ah this is how you work <laughs> and um i i think i i have got gradually more careful about uh nuance as around me this polarization has grown so I've got to the stage where a a few years ago when I was in the the new atheist movement I I didn't have a lot of nuance really it was just um, your religion thinks that everyone who believes the wrong thing is going to be tortured for all eternity how do you justify that you don't it's evil stop it so that was um, quite a, a simplistic stance on faith, mm-hmm. um, but now I think that religious believers generally don't go around thinking about the concept of hell and how it's great that everyone who believes something different goes there. They're they're drawn to you know hope um, for an afterlife of um, of caring for each other. So so that they're, they're mediating a lot of the same sort of impulses that I would call humanist through their own faith system now th- this it doesn't make much um logical sense to me because I am a very literal person but I can see that that is what what they are doing there there are very few who um who really are uh, radicals who uh you know, want everybody who believes something different to suffer eternally. So that's, I'm certainly more nuanced there, but I've become more nuanced politically as we've been engaging with these ideas. And some people, um, a particular Mike Nainer, for example, who um, constantly wanted me to simplify and be more direct in cynical theories, and he's largely the reason it's quite simple and direct, um, has said to me that I will be on the scaffold as the guillotine is raised, um, passing apart the um, the arguments for and against the revolution. So, uh...
0: <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, I think though no, it does. I mean that does speak to your character in a sense. Um, it makes sense uh, that that you have ended up where you've ended up because it doesn't really seem possible that you could have ended up any other way like like you don't have um if you're if you're comfortable to just go through kind of how you've ended up career wise where you are like writing cynical theories and starting counterweight and all of that stuff because you don't have the classic you know say a- academic to public intellectual background that, that's kind of straight route through a university that people would expect or even a journalism career?
1: No, I, I, um, I was privately educated. So I was expected to go through the, um, yeah, the school, university career route, but I didn't like um, school. So I didn't do very well at my GCSEs. I didn't attend my A-levels. I went into a job at seventeen as a care assistant, which I loved. And because of the property slump at that time, uh, I was able to buy a one-bedroom flat in London. Can you imagine? Uh, for twenty-six thousand pounds, which I could afford on, oh a, a, yeah, on a, a care assistant salary. And and that was what I did for seventeen years. I I was a, a home care worker. I went into elderly people' homes, sometimes younger disabled people, and I I helped them to wash, to dress, to do the um, basic needs of life, but also get to know them as a a person and um, learn about their lives and um, what made them who they were and to, to find out what it was that, that I could do to help them make their lives uh, a bit better. So there's a, a real potential for autonomy in, in home care. And that was why I did that rather than working in a home. Uh you, you can go in, you can get to know someone, you can work around their routine, you can find out who they are, you can find out ways to help them um, be more who they are, even if they are um, confined to a chair or if they are deaf. And that is really very, very satisfying. So I think I would have done that job forever except that after um, a complication of of pregnancy and and the the cyst that I have in my brain um, caused me to have something like a stroke. So I had some paralysis um, down one side and visual problems, uh, very poor balance and coordination, a great deal of pain. And I, I had for several years to spend most of my time lying down in a dark room um but i could still read so i thought well this could be the time that i get my um my degree so i got my degree in english literature and then i got my masters in early modern studies and um I took supplementary courses in uh, latin and uh, french uh, for a while to, so so that i could um read the text. and I, I got very into that but this is when i started to see the problem in academia very clearly because my my views weren't welcome my my kind of feminism wasn't welcome there was a really anti-scientific attitude that i kept coming up against over and over again in english literature and that that worried me because i i don't see any need for the humanities and the sciences to be opposed i i think that it's quite clear that they can um help each other and in fact you know as uh, a late medievalist science has has revealed so much of social reality then that um texts on their own couldn't tell us so i i was a bit worried about this attitude towards science um, particularly as I, I was very much already part of the the skeptic movement, and when it came to studying a compulsory module on postmodernism, this is really when I knew that I would have to take this on, these ideas on, and the the way that they had evolved after that. So I spent. This, this was about 10 years ago. So I've been studying postmodernism in the original form and then uh, the theories that have followed it for several hours a day ever since. And at the same time, I was seeing the influences of intersectional feminism, particularly on my feminism. So I, I was mm-hmm. still identifying as feminist and I was getting quite annoyed... Because if you're a liberal feminist and also part of the New Atheist movement, you come into contact with a lot of ex-Muslims. And ex-Muslims are trying generally to address some really quite serious issues of gender equality and LGBT equality. And it annoyed me tremendously that i was not allowed to support muslim feminists if they were criticizing things like gender specific modesty codes and i would mm-hmm. i would be Speaking to feminists who would be complaining about the the requirement for for modesty. So this is a few years ago when there were still Slut Walks and things, and this was a a thing, you know, protesting against um, expectations of of women to be modest. And I try to bring in the the feminists who are protesting the hijab as a uh, an oppressive garment, and and suddenly uh, you're. Islamophobic and, and far-right and that we have to respect other cultures. How how does this, this actually work? If we have to respect uh, cultures, and you're claiming we live in a rape culture, do we have to respect that? If we don't have to respect that, why do we have to respect these issues in other cultures, particularly when there are people in them who are not respecting them and who are asking us not to respect them either and to help them. So I I got very annoyed, particularly when um, Stop Enslaving Saudi Women, the hashtag. Now, that was coming out of Saudi Arabia in English. There was a reason... The Saudi feminists were writing it in English. It wasn't so that feminists over the Anglosphere could say, no, they don't it's their culture and we must respect it. They they don't want our interference. I think they do, otherwise they'd probably be writing in Arabic, wouldn't they? So I um I I, I got very annoyed, and these two things, the intellectual part and the activist part came up at the, the same time. And so I addressed them both at, at the same time. And I, I have done ever since.
0: Um, it's interesting what you say, because in a sense, it's it's sort of, um, I guess, a dichotomy that's become increasingly obvious um, over the last, I don't know, five to seven years, but especially the last five years, where there's this sense with the left that you are a left-wing person. You're, you know, I certainly consider you such, you're, you're a liberal you're a liberal person. So there is this strange sort of um, idea that the left is still the, the radical left that, you know, sort of comprised the left, I guess, of, of your mother's generation um, and possibly a little bit later. But the kind of the current left is something very different and is, uh, in a sense, there is there is the idea that leftists like you are continually accused of not being on the left because, that version of the left has been you're essentially left behind as it were um things have moved to this odd new place where um a lot of sort of classically liberal values are no longer considered important and um the two versions of the left are sort of unrecognizable to each other yeah i i think
1: i'd i'd say that that what we have at the moment is is three main elements on the left so we okay. we have the radicals the marxist um, socialist left the the old left as it were then we have the social justice left uh, which is a very sort of a new phenomenon, which is going growing strength in strength, and which everybody will be well aware of. And then we have the the liberal left, which is um, considered by the Marxists to be almost right wing because it it accepts capitalism. I'm I, I'm on the mm-hmm. left, but I I think that the evidence is clear that a capitalist society is one in which there is least poverty. I you know my leftism is m- manifest by wanting to tax rich people um more i you know i think we should let people get rich and then we should tax them a lot so this um <laughs> this this annoys everybody um but i i think yeah with the social justice left it's difficult and it's tempting to say that they are not left and in some ways there aren't so we just published um a summary of a study by uh, jordan moss and he was looking at the extremes of um, both left and right at the moment the populist anti-intellectual right and the social justice left and comparing them psychologically with uh, traits traditionally found on the left and the right and they don't fit there's something else entirely but we have to accept these ideas did come from the left. They came from a mixture of some Marxist ideas, which uh, then got mostly overruled, but partially adopted by some postmodern ideas, and then uh, went through a series of identity politics, borrowing a lot from the black radical tradition in the US, to become what we see today. So so this is at the left. At no point um, did uh, conservative thought have any part in this. So I I will own it. We have to accept that this is part of the left. It's a part of the left that's gone very, very wrong. And I I keep trying to argue because Marxists will insist that this is radical liberalism or mad liberalism. So they'll call it radlib or madlib and I keep trying to tell them this isn't liberalism at all. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. um, conservatives will insist that it's cultural Marxism, and I'm trying to tell them this isn't Marxism either. And I've even said, um, I've put out a call to to Marxists, if you will stop calling this radical liberalism, I will will commit to, to opposing anybody who calls it cultural Marxism. We can't address this unless we accept how it actually works. And I, I think that's why I've got more precise and more nuanced because the situation is so complicated. And if people are arguing against an ideology that doesn't actually work the way they think it does, the chances of of defeating it are, are almost zero.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean... I think one of the challenges obviously with this is that it's taken you years to get to the point where you are as good as kind of breaking this down as you are. The average person just doesn't have a chance of developing that kind of nuance without doing similar work and having obviously a similar interest. But I guess for people who kind of don't have a sense of what you're talking about in terms of, I suppose, the, the pragmatic application or why you think that this is a kind of a risky situation that we should be concerned about and, and that we need to protect kind of, you know, a more generally familiar version of liberalism, um, a less confusing version of it, because <laughs> as you say, it doesn't feel liberal at all. Um, it doesn't feel particularly left and yet it is. So what is it exactly that you're talking about?
1: So when it comes down to it in its most sort of visible manifestation, so I'm I'm going to describe what people um, are seeing. Uh, There's this idea that knowledge is a construct of power. So what we know is what has been decided by powerful forces in society that this is spread by uh, ways of talking about things so that these are the the core postmodern ideas where of discourses. Um, powerful forces in society decide what is true, they legitimise this as knowledge, and then everybody speaks into that knowledge and they maintain it by the way they speak about it. So whereas the Marxists used to see quite a simple dichotomy where there was the wealthy who were just oppressing the the working class and it just pushed straight down. This isn't what we see in social justice, which comes from the postmodern idea that power is circulating all throughout society through the way we are talking about things. So this is why you will see now, it doesn't matter who has just said something that could be deemed to be racist, if it's the President of the United States or it's somebody on Twitter with six followers, they need to be... Um, corrected because they're speaking into this dominant discourse. And if we all speak into these dominant discourses, which are called things like white supremacy, patriarchy, Heteronormativity and cisnormativity, which is is the, the the assumption that everybody is heterosexual or the assumption that it, it's it's normal to identify with the sex indicated by your reproductive system. Then um, if if everybody is speaking into these discourses, they're maintaining them. Therefore, activism now is not about adjusting society to make things more equal on an economic basis, as it was for the for the marxists and, and for a, a certain extent um, for the liberals the liberals are still progressive they still want to make things more fair and so there is always an ongoing reform process the social justice people and the the, the marxists are are revolutionaries so they they want to turn society upside down and remake it. Liberals don't. Liberals want to keep making things better, sort of one problem at a time. And and that's what's worked, essentially. This this is why we have um, laws which prohibit racial discrimination, sex discrimination. It's why homosexuality is no longer illegal. It's the liberal reforming impulse which has caused this. Social justice doesn't see things like that. It sees systems of power that are present in attitudes and biases and revealed in language. And so we need to get into how people are speaking, which means we need to get into how people are thinking. So this is where we see the authoritarian focus on what can and can't be said and the attempts to actually get into people's minds and reprogram them with the um the unconscious bias training and and the these kinds of attitude and uh, and belief focused activism it it's it's really quite alarming and and you know it, we've we've seen it before this is very very typical of humans. It's a thing we do. When we think we have the truth, then we need to police what everybody else believes. So in in my period of study, which was um, primarily the 14th century, you have a look at confession, when people have to go through various things, that assert that they believe certain things, then go through various sins they could have committed, check them all off, um, to, to make sure that they're believing the right things and thinking in the right way. That was enforced by the church for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it was done in the service of good. People needed to be kept within this understanding of what is morally good in order to save their souls. Now people People who were saying heretical things, um, the Lollards, and then the Protestants, and, and you know, Muslims even—they um, they were dangerous because they were they could contaminate society. They could cause people to stray from the true path and damn their souls for eternity. So that that's that's a really sort of normal thing for humans to do, and and of course, it, I think it makes intuitive sense if you know that something is right then why would you allow people to say something else? But it's the development of of liberal societies which have actually bypassed these human intuitions and said we we do need to let people say things that we think are appalling. We need to be able to have conversations about them even if we think they're awful. And this is, is what has resulted in the fastest advance of scientific knowledge and the greatest moral progress that I think has ever been seen historically ever. So that's why we need to defend liberalism in that sense of freedom, of belief, the idea that the the individual is the owner of their own mind, that they have agency, that they can make choices themselves, that... Um, that we have a shared humanity, and that we have plurality. So, so we can live alongside people who believe different things and nobody needs to murder anybody or force them to pretend to believe anything else. That, that's what's under threat at the moment with, uh, with social justice. And you know mm. I, i'm not I'm not saying that there's going to be a maoist revolution and struggle sessions um any you know immediately we're, we're seeing a much more subtle form of this so with counterweight I'm dealing with it on a on a daily basis so there's there's no point people continually trying to tell me that that cancel culture isn't real and nobody's being forced to pretend to believe things they don't believe they are they are all the time i'm i'm currently dealing with seven of them and that that's just me the number of cases that that come in just to us let alone the people who aren't actually seeking to do something about it is um, is really quite alarming
0: so I mean, obviously you said a lot there and it was, it was all very interesting. (laughs) So, but, and I want, I definitely want to talk about counterweight because obviously I I'm affiliated with counterweight. I'm, I'm very supportive of, of what they're doing for individuals who don't feel like they can defend their beliefs in the workplace. Um, But I guess I find it interesting. It's kind of a nice argument as well for rooms full of people who disagree with each other, because obviously conservatives and and libertarians who are not necessarily conservatives but they're focused on individuals and what is lost here is individuals so this idea that if you if each individual is just subsumed into an identity group than they are representative of this identity group rather than an agent in themselves with the right to articulate a view that differs from that group or dissents from that group. Mm. And then you just end up with this kind of extreme form of utilitarianism where any individual is a small price to pay for the homogeny, intellectual or ideological homogeny of the group.
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it's it's all, you know, extremely likely that this has an evolutionary basis. Because it, historically, in order to survive, a group has had to be in accord. Uh, finding somebody who is isn't going along with the the dominant narrative the the rules is likely to weaken a group is likely to make them all weaker and and to endanger people, so I think this the intuition that we have that somebody who is thinking something we, we find appalling is it, really physically dangerous is, is probably rooted in a reality that they were uh, for much of our history. And I, I think, is it, is it Carl Menninger? It's a, a one uh, neuropsychiatrist has found that our brains react to ideas that we think are wrong in the same way as they react to danger. And that that shows a link very, very clearly between the danger of um, a a physical danger and the danger of having somebody in your midst who isn't with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's completely understandable that uh, individuals might feel um, threatened or at a minimum distressed by people who think you know, sometimes uh, or express very disgusting opinions. It's not really, um, Mm. it's not hard on an interpersonal level to understand the position that you believe the world might be a nicer place if they couldn't do that. And even better if they didn't think that. But obviously when you maximize that on a group level and you look at it, it doesn't really make for a very... um, a very free or uh rich or interesting world
1: <laughs> i mean how how many people have died because of a disagreement over whether the bread and wine is literally or symbolically the blood of christ the body and blood of christ now that that seems like such a tiny thing but it isn't because it goes much much deeper it's the sense that that there is there is an alien there is a dissenter there is a potential danger This is something that we've had to fight against. It really is so counterintuitive. And we've we've fought against it, but only because we've set up a society which insists that we do. So not everybody has to value viewpoint diversity. Not everybody, there's no responsibility to go and uh, immerse yourself um, among others with different views and compare them. You can just uh, stay among people who agree with you. You know, there's some of us, like me, like to get into these conversations, like to have these arguments. Other people like to watch them and consider them. This is what the marketplace of ideas is for. But you don't have to go to the marketplace that's the thing. You you can actually stay among your own little group and do your own thing, just as long as you let other groups exist as well. I think we, we need to to really try and emphasise again the, the fact that we're arguing for people to be able to say appalling things doesn't mean that we're arguing for anybody else to be forced to hear those appalling things. There also needs to be freedom not to listen. And freedom mm-hmm. not to engage. So trying to get people to understand that, you know, they can just not go. If somebody if, mm-hmm. if some, on, on the campus, if a gender critical feminist is going to say that she doesn't believe gender identity is a real thing, you cannot go. You can go and do something else. You can go to the pub. Now, that wouldn't seem at all satisfying to them because what they would argue is that she is feeding into this discourse. A lot of people are hearing it. It's contributing to this atmosphere that creates hostility against trans people. Trans people are more likely to be murdered. And this is all connected within this whole system of discourses. And so there's a moral imperative to prevent that person from speaking. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Um, which obviously makes sense within that viewpoint but the 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 primary issue obviously that you're taking is with the legitimacy of or the or the truth of that perspective as it were which I've always found philosophically interesting because obviously it's it's not interested in conceptions of truth only in conceptions of power Mm. so in a world where there is this scenario you have to struggle for the sort of dominance of your ideology, and it makes sense why one person saying the wrong thing in the wrong place is going to be a major problem for you. Um, For people who might be watching or listening who are completely uninitiated, (laughs) by the way, with this stuff, when you say that, um, you know, we're defending people saying appalling things, I think it's important to point out that we're not defending someone's right to say something terrible is not the same as endorsing the content of that statement. So the idea being that when you have freedom of expression, you get Shakespeare and you also get scat porn. And the Mm -hmm. scat porn is a price we pay for the Shakespeare. It doesn't mean we like the scat porn. It's there.
1: (laughs) Mm, I mean, sometimes, you know, ideas that are appalling, they could be something like the, the Holocaust was a good thing. Black people are subhuman. These are are ideas which are really appalling. It's quite clear that they are. Um, We defend their right to be spoken, not um, in the faces of Jews and and black people, obviously, but people can have um, these views in their their own space and they can take the consequences of being largely regarded by society as both stupid and immoral. But uh, ideas that have been considered appalling very recently... Uh, have included atheism and have included homosexuality. So this is why we need to protect the right to actually have um, appalling ideas, because... If we were to go with the majority rule in a, a lot of countries, I I, I would be appalling, and I'd, I'd be considered appalling. And th- this is this is what we see in, ma- in Muslim majority countries where people cannot say that they are an atheist without um, legitimate fear of being murdered, and um, when they can't be gay, and and that was also the case um, not too long ago, right here. Uh, and they, even when people weren't actually prosecuted for, for being gay or for being atheists, there was still a very strong prejudice against people. They were considered to have a disorder, um, you know, hurt gay people um, and not to be safe around children and that atheist as well to be immoral. And these ideas have gradually subsided to uh, a general consensus. Well, some people don't have religion and some people are gay get over it because we have been able to talk about them. The book that I, I am always evangelical about is um, Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rauch, in which he argues specifically for this. He argues um, for the right for people to, to to doubt the Holocaust and to say that homosexuality is immoral. And he, he uses this these examples throughout the book and, and really shows quite convincingly that by being able to argue against these ideas, anti-Semitism and... Homophobia decreased um, really remarkably fast because these arguments are terrible. Then they're not at all convincing. The arguments against Holocaust denial and, and homophobia are so much better. The attitudes changed, and it 's only in the last chapter of Kindly Inquisitors that that John Roush reveals that he is both gay and jewish so it you know it, it's not an awesome identity based argument but that that's that's what it comes down to. How do you think bad ideas die and this is this is where I, I get very frustrated because. I think bad ideas die by being able to get at them and show them to be bad ideas. And uh, the critical social justice people believe that bad ideas die by punishing them out of existence. I I don't think that that's ever worked. There isn't evidence that that works. But trying to get them to understand that I'm not saying we should allow these ideas to be spoken because they're acceptable, but we should allow these ideas to be spoken because we want to argue with them uh, and that's how they'll die doesn't, doesn't seem to get through they'll say but what about really really awful ideas as though i'm going to say the best way to beat ideas is to argue with them but if they're really really awful then we really really need to argue with them <laughs> that's when it becomes more important i mean some of the the worst ideas that are, are traveling around right now are um, you know anti vax um ideas some of the the mm-hmm. more sort of a- extreme Views on on there, which, which could end up with um, children dying in, in the cases of the um, the whole sort of uh, vaccines and autism um, thing. It, you, we need to get at that. We need to be able to argue against those ideas and to to dismantle them. And unfortunately, we're still allowed to do that. But other ideas that we're we're not allowed to argue with are are quite worrying. So I, as as a liberal, I am um, generally uh, in support of trans rights. I think in nearly every case um, and every situation, a trans woman um, can be accepted straightforwardly as a trans woman without there needing to be any um, fuss about it. I I think it is morally good if people do do that. I, I don't think they should be forced to, but I think it is a morally good thing to refer to a trans woman as a woman, to call her she, and to treat her with dignity and respect as a woman. Now, that's a liberal position, but what we're, we're hearing now is a real authoritarian opposition to the idea that it can be legitimate at all to say that some women's spaces need to be protected, particularly in shelters and prisons, and that women's sports could be damaged by the inclusion of trans women who have gone through male puberty. These are reasonable arguments which actually do need to be made and the amount of, of of threats, of of violence, of of, the, of no platforming, the sheer sort of backlash if if anybody suggests that there is ever any situation in which it is okay not to accept a trans woman straightforwardly as a woman is is really strong at, at the moment. It's it, that's I think the clearest example as something that needs to be said and and cannot be said. It's a discussion we need to have.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, the idea that I think that there's anything that isn't open to questioning or talking about anything at all is inherently an illiberal idea. And a lot of people will agree to that, as you say, to a point, and then they'll say, but accept this. This shibboleth, you know, this thing can't be touched. Yeah. and you can't proceed on that basis. It's really more of an all or nothing thing. One of the things that I find very interesting about that idea that you were talking about, um, which is inherent to these approaches is, as you say, the idea that um, ideas themselves are dangerous. So, you know, you let them out into the ether, like some kind of noxious substance and they're absorbed into people. Mm. Um, I find that conception incredibly patronizing. It suggests that, you know, everyone but me as the, you know, as the one who's running in with the moral panic and saying, we can't talk about this in case people are instantly converted to bad ideas. It's a very kind of um, elite, elitist, middle class, (laughs) upper middle class idea that people are intellectually beneath me, whoever I am, and that I need to protect their porous minds from bad ideas because they don't have the ability to engage with them, to compare them to other ideas, um, and since I'm robbing them the, of the ability to debate about or, or think about them really in a public sense, I just, it's it's essentially just a spoon-feeding of here is what you think, lower being, here is the truth as I present it.
1: <laughs> I, I think, yeah, you, you can certainly experience it like that. There is a belief that people simply cannot deal with certain ideas and i i think here's, um i'm going to sort of take the, the a devil's advocate position for my for my own um free speech absolutism because here is where i have um my i believe in free speech but moment and it's the only place that i have it and i i'm i'm very conflicted about it but i i think in some cases say for example there is a group, as there is here in East London, um, which has been shown to um, take young men who seem to be perfectly reasonable and healthy young men, uh, indoctrinate them, and then the next thing we know they are in Syria um, blowing people up. Should that group be banned? I I think there's actually an argument that... Um, radical groups like that, and also uh, far-right extremists, there's, there, are, there are grounds to ban these groups, but this is mostly because they're underground. If they wanted to bring those ideas up onto a university campus, or say, for example, where ideas are supposed to be um, discussed, and then have somebody else discuss them with them, that would be a very different matter. But with, with what you were saying, we, we've even gone um, past the thing where I'm worried other people um, will, will, be, will take in these horrible ideas. To so this idea that we've all taken them all in already. So particularly with the idea of, of whiteness and white supremacy, with someone like Robin DiAngelo, everybody who is white is racist. There, there isn't a, a way not to be racist. Your choices are that you are either racist and you admit it and you do the work to dismantle it as far as you can, even though that will always be inadequate, or you are racist and selfishly in denial and actively doing harm to people of colour by not admitting your own racism. So we still have the, the um, sort of elite position and the moral superiority, and this is where we see the, the declarations, um, white people um, saying that they are racist and that they will try to be less racist, is because that's still the morally superior position. I'm a racist, but at least I know it. It's... <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's it's a ludicrous um, state of affairs that that really couldn't have been imagined. I, I think even even ten years ago, but now it, it's really an assumption. It, it's quite it, it's quite mainstream. It's quite commonly accepted and getting more so.
0: I think though, as well, it's it's as insulting to the people it claims to be protecting as the people it claims to be calling out. In that it it does reduce us all to categories on the basis of immutable characteristics, and it doesn't allow any room for individuals who interpret things differently. You know, you if you are a white person, you have to be, which is a ridiculous category, as is black person. Like, What does that even mean? But you have to think certain things, you have to behave in certain ways. And the only way to deal with dissenters within those groups is to pretend they don't exist and shun them when it turns out that they do. But the cost as an individual of buying into that. It's very high. Like, for example, when we were talking earlier about not identifying as feminist anymore, in in part for me, the very important distinction that helped me make that decision is that I don't see women as a category as victims. I don't think they are victims. They can be victimized, of course, but it's regressive to consider women victims. And it reinforces a really terrible narrative that I don't think is helpful for anybody. And I would have to accept that and proliferate that view in order to be welcome as part of, you know, that group. And I don't want to do that. This this is what worries
1: me particularly. I mean, this this is why I I focused almost exclusively on um, gender, on on women, um, until quite recently when the Black Lives Matter um, has taken so much precedence. And we're, we're hearing so much less about the oppression of women now. We have the Karen meme and things, so we, we've fallen from favour as a, oppressed groups. But it, it's particularly worrying to me because I have a 16-year-old daughter. And mm-hmm. I, when I left home, I was in the burst of, of feminism that was in that really optimistic phase so it, it there was some anger there in in liberal feminism but mostly there was optimism this this was the era of sisters are doing it for themselves you know that that's a song of, of mm-hmm. celebration and um and power and and it it's it was very very positive I I worry hugely about what it would do to my what it will do to my daughter if she believes that any anytime she goes into a room um, where there are men, she will be in danger um, and also undervalued, that she's going to be regarded as less competent, less intelligent, because she's female, that she is constantly at risk of being assaulted. And even the, and this is where I cross lines for many people, and and um, accused of going too far. Even if something horrible happens to a woman, um, so for I, I have been flashed at in my life. I I live in London. There are there are millions of people. Four times, four times a man for no apparent reason has stepped out in front of me and shown me his penis. Now that's a rather uncomfortable thing to happen. It's frightening for some people because I'm a care assistant. <laughs> I was. Um, I actually once, um, coming at the ho- hospital in which I was working, a man stepped out and flashed his penis at me and I didn't even notice. I thought oh, somebody else will look after him. Um, but yeah, it's generally yeah, it's it's upsetting, you know. And, and somebody, if a man comes and dares to put his hand on a part of your body where it has no reason to be this is um, an offense against you, and you have the right to be very angry about that. What worries me is the idea that you will never ever recover from this. Mm-hmm. You are now um, a victim, you are traumatized it 's going to be very difficult for you to deal with this now obviously, for some people it, it could be particularly people who have been victims of um to the horrible sexual abuse as a child or something. But for for most of us, I think that is an unacceptable and horrible happening which shouldn't have happened and which should be prosecuted, but we will survive. We know that and saying that, saying we will survive and we can survive it seems to translate itself in the air to it's actually okay mm, yeah. um, to some people. And that's, that's not um, indicated in, in any way.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the alternative to what you're saying is a narrative that um, your fate is in the hands of another person and that you can be destroyed by a single horrible or frightening or just inappropriate Uh, event that is not within your control and that's just too high a cost to pay for um for any belief system like as you say it's it's perfectly possible that for some people some events that occur in their lives that are not any fault of their own um are not something they can recover from Mm. but in general the maxim needs to be that we can be all right again after anything that happens to us because the alternative is just unthinkable um so everything that you've been talking about, essentially, um, I think is a contributing factor to why you set up Counterweight. But can you talk about what it is and how um, the relevance it bears to the situations we've been discussing?
1: Yeah. OK, so uh, Counterweight uh, began as a Discord server in June of last year because I was receiving so many emails um, after the, the Black Lives Matter protests. So um, businesses were were setting up new policies, new training programs. People were being asked to affirm things they didn't believe. So often white people were being asked to affirm that they were racist. Um, Non-white people were being expected to testify to very specific uh, experiences of racism. So I was absolutely inundated with emails and we poured everybody into the Discord server Carrie Clark, my my partner, um, she came along and started setting up advice pathways and resource banks and finding out what people needed. And we we ended up with an an organisation. So what we have now is as people will come to us with a particular problem, sometimes probably 75% of the time we can help them with a template letter, a referral to another organisation or resources. But about 25% of the time we'll need to go through their situation with them. We'll need to help them write a letter to their, their employer um, or to practice for an interview, perhaps. But we'll take a, a situation and we'll brainstorm it and see how we can help that particular individual. So we have a high success rate. It, it doesn't always happen quickly. Um, one of our, our our first clients, who is now one of our core team members, spent eight months getting herself on an equity diversity and inclusion board, and persuading them to make the uh, diversity training voluntary rather than mandatory. Now that that was mm-hmm. a, a big success, and it took her eight months of persistent perseverance, but she did it. It does it doesn't normally take quite that long. Uh, But this is is what we're we're doing essentially. We're we're helping people to take, to approach their employer with whatever situation it is. It could be quite a mild one or it could be quite a severe one. Um, Respond to it appropriately and seek a resolution. And most of the time we can find a resolution. So um, yeah, we're, we're having um, a high success rate, but we're also getting increasing numbers of people coming in because of that. We we have um, a community where people get together and they organise around their own profession. And that's a very effective way of um, dealing with things if you are an engineer or something. Getting together with other engineers, working out how to approach it from your own perspective and, and sort of doing it as a group really does Work well because we've had so many people suffering um, mental stress from this, um, really um, doubting themselves, thinking that they're going mad, um, being horribly bullied, getting quite mentally ill. We've also developed a mental health team for this. So um, we have Jennifer Friend, who is an American woman who's had her own issues with um, this, and she has set up a listening service we have volunteers um who are therapists or psychologists of various kinds who will um listen to people and um and help them talk through their feelings and this is enormously helpful to then um addressing them Fe- mm-hmm. feeling more calm and centered and being able to go in and be firm be p- persistent and to to push it back and and we can we can push it back we can nearly always push it back
0: yeah um and I mean again, I suppose to state the obvious uh it's unfortunate to have to, but just to state the obvious in the case of something like um diversity training the sort of end goal of that you don't have to uh you don't have to lack belief in in the end goal of of such an endeavor, which is obviously uh i i mean arguably um a potentially diverse workplace that's full of, you know, comfortable individuals who all feel happy to express themselves. It's the means of getting there that you may disagree with. And sometimes the end goal of trainings like that is not, in fact, that kind of liberal environment, which mm. is a problem in itself. Well, no, I, if we have sometimes, uh, well, actually four times
1: in the whole time we've been running, we've had someone come to us who wants us to help them deal with a perfectly reasonable expectation that they not be racist at once work and um we've had to say well no can you know <laughs> just um please, don't be not racist at work <laughs> yeah th- 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 this is not what we're here for so um th- and this is what uh, we have to say to people as well though because quite often someone will hear the words diversity, equity and inclusion and they will assume the most authoritarian Robin DiAngelo, everybody is racist ideas and they will charge in too hard when in fact what the employer is setting up is something that is quite liberal that does allow um, diversity of viewpoints and we know that employers are doing this because quite a lot of them are coming to us um, for help with developing their policies and their, their programs so that they are still inclusive of a great variety of, of worldviews because you can oppose racism from all number of positions. You can oppose it because you're a Marxist and, and you believe that class is the deciding factor or because you're a liberal and you think that people are individuals because you're a conservative and you think, again, people are individuals and there's personal responsibility not to be racist because you're a religious believer and you believe that everyone is a child of God, it doesn't matter why you believe that racism is something that should not take place in your workplace. The employer has the right to demand that you you behave that way at work. So, with, mm-hmm, of course, we're certainly not um, we're we're not opposed to diversity, um, and 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 any sort of sensible aims to increase representation.
0: Um, so I guess just to finish, because I find it interesting and I'm kind of drawn back to that image of you um, as the guillotine is coming down. I don't consider you to be somebody who um, sort of courts negative attention or who's deliberately contrarian. But I do consider you someone who is not all that interested in consensus if you don't think that the consensus is correct. And obviously the sort of telos of counterweight is pretty much to. Assist people who want to be able to, you know, express an individual and differing view in the face of pressure from a much more powerful entity, um, to uh, to just conform. So, I mean, do you think that's an accurate assessment? Is that does that fit you?
1: Yes, uh, we we want people to be able to to have their own beliefs and to I mean to, to express them you, you obviously you can't go around work expressing all kinds of beliefs you're meant to be working, but as a general rule yes your your workplace should not make it impossible for you to be say a conservative or a Christian or a Muslim or or anything else they they should allow for you to have your own beliefs and require Simple um decent, respectful behavior towards other human beings and colleagues at work, so I would say counterweight is there for it's a it 's a liberal humanist organization it 's secular, but that doesn 't mean that all of the people who we help um, identify as liberal humanists or or are um non religious we we have we will help somebody stand up for their right to have a Christian belief, uh, for example. So th- this works very well with uh, Robin D'Angelo and the whole idea that everybody is socialized into a certain belief. That is incompatible with the Abrahamic uh, faiths, which believe that God gave humans free will. That is central to all three of those religions. So if we have somebody who is a believer of one of those religions, then we have got good grounds for them to say, I I object to this and uh, this is why I object to this. This actually works in the UK. This works well with the Equalities Act in which people are allowed to have certain philosophical beliefs and they include religions. So that's a way in. To things we want people to be able to express um, and live by various beliefs, and for their their employer not to force them to affirm things they don't believe. I I, I think I am a contrarian in some ways because I enjoy arguing, uh, but that doesn't mean I'm I'm going to argue for the sake of it. I I will find a cause that needs arguing against. And then I I will address that if we win this one, and I hope we will, it's very likely that I will find some other illiberal force in society and um, begin to argue against it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think there are obviously cultural incentives when you have this amount of sort of downward pressure around a belief system to conform, you know, uh, and, and there are people who one day are completely disinterested in the environment and then you know the next day are suddenly wearing shoes made of recycled bottles and advertising mm-hmm. their belief system on their chest or those people who you know uh, like steak and then a week later they're telling everyone they're a vegan there are sort of um there are social incentives to to conform with belief systems. And that is not to say that there are no people who hold those beliefs organically and for good reason. I'm just talking about the people who do things to conform and there are lots. So I suppose something like counterweight is very important because it, without something like counterweight, the option is conform in order to keep your job and kind of benefit and not look like a terrible human being who just won't fit in with this obviously kindly intended change. Or, conform wholeheartedly, essentially, uh, and reap the benefits of doing so, um, which often turn into pointing the finger at other people to pressure them to conform as well, Um, because obviously you look most righteous if you do that too.
1: Yeah, I I like that. I I think that's that's a good um, description of what Counterweight is trying to do. We operate largely behind the scenes, and we operate in ways that... That enable people to address things how they want to. So there are, are some organisations um, in this space that, that really want to find the most egregious case and make them as public as possible, uh, so that that you know public opinion is is drawn to to this to this egregious happening and it, and it turns against the idea. And this is how activism works. This is you know this Rosa Parks um, sort of gained public sympathy because. It was so awful that, that she was, this hard-working woman, was expected to stand up. So this is how activism works in, in some ways. We draw big public attention to cases. That isn't what counterweight does. We know that a lot of people don't want to um, make a big drama out of something. They don't want to become um, a notorious figure of some kind. They want to engage with the, the ideas, to, to assume the best of their employer, to negotiate a solution, ideally to explain what they see the problem is and to find a way through it. And that that is that is what actually works because the number of employers who don't really know what it is they're advocating or they don't understand the, the full implications of it are probably somewhere up in the 90%. So if you can get mm-hmm. someone to go in there and to say, I, I'm fully in support of this um, diversity, equity, and inclusion idea, and I, I've got some ideas myself as to how we can be more um, welcoming to people of all races, et cetera. I'm a bit worried about the way we're going about this. Um, this is why. That's going to work on, on quite a number of occasions, because generally employers do just want to have some kind of ethical policy that shows them to be caring about um, racial issues, but they don't necessarily want to be enforcing a particular ideology and making everybody stick to it.
0: Hmm. Um. So to close, I thought to return to the theme of change and finish there, I would ask you, um, if you're able to share it, um, what you consider to be the moment of, uh, or an instance of kind of the most profound, um, intellectual or ideological change that you've undergone. It could be something that took place over a, over a long period of time. Um, but I suppose, what is it about you now that is the furthest departure from the you that left home, you know, as a kind of a, an, a strong leftist who you say, you know, wasn't mature in their ideas? Okay, so I, I think now the
1: way that I, that I have changed most is that I can actually see... Some value in ideas that I disagree with, so I, I've always had the belief that um, some things are right and some things are wrong, and I've continued with this belief, but grown more um, more determined that people should be allowed to be wrong. But now I, as a left-wing liberal, I uh, who sort of spends her time criticising critical social justice, I can now say, OK, so, so conservatives do have a point in some ways. We should listen to conservatives when they're telling us uh, to be careful that we're not rushing ahead with progress so far, that we're throwing out good things that need to be preserved. We should listen to Marxists when they're drawing our attention to class issues. And we should listen to critical social justice people when they're they're talking about biases that we might not be aware of, that language that could be hurtful that we're not really thinking about and we should think about a bit more. So I can steel man these. I can see the kernel of good. That is in these, and ideally bring them into my own liberalism, in order to strengthen it and to use it as a, a criticism uh, of liberalism, which which can be a little idealistic. It can be a little too focused on the individual, um, to the detriment of of groups, and it can be too forward charging. Um so yeah that that I think is the greatest one and th- and this is something that's that's happened really over the last couple of years that I've really started thinking about okay what good kernels of truth can I take from um political positions that I don't agree with at all and and think would be terrible if they were implemented um society wide <laughs>
0: That seems like a pretty good one. I think we should all aspire to award a bit of that, to be honest. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. I always enjoy it when we chat, but it, this is the weirdest format through which we ever have. So.
1: <laughs> it does feel a bit odd. I, I hope soon that we'll... I was going to say go and have a glass of wine, but you won't have the wine. I'll have the wine. You'll have the disgustingly weak tea. <laughs>
0: and we, we can have a conversation that be nice. I might even I might even venture as far as Essex because it's been long enough. <laughs> yes. Yes, that would be lovely. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Second Self. This podcast was edited by Billy Adamson and JJ Hadari. Music was written by Team.